0: So the first talk this afternoon uh, is going to be by uh, Dr. Constance Benson. Uh, many of you uh, know her. I certainly know her uh, very well because she's at my university. Uh, she is a, um, a professor of, of medicine uh, at University of California, San Diego, uh, and runs our training program. Uh, she uh, uh, has been involved in antiretroviral uh, um, Research and clinical care for many years has played a large role in what we know about opportunistic infections and their management, and today is going to talk to us about uh, some of the new drugs that were discovered and discussed at CROI, as we uh, continue to uh, move the field forward uh, with um, the uh, bringing new agents to the clinic. Dr. Benson.
1: So as you can see from my financial disclosure statement here, Dr. Schooley knows me more for other reasons than for me being at the same institution. So um, you can see the learning objectives. uh, You can review those at your leisure in the syllabus. So I'm going to start off with a quintessential question whenever there's a talk about new investigational drugs, and it becomes more relevant with HIV as time goes on, do we really need new antiretroviral drugs? As you saw from the case presentations from Dr. Sag, there's a whole panoply of different agents and regimens available to us now, all of which are really pretty well tolerated and very effective. So I like this slide. I took it from Joe Aaron's talk at CROI in 2016 because I think it really lays out the issues for me, no matter what new drugs we're talking about. And that's one, we have bigger goals. Obviously, the fast-track targets articulated by the WHO and UNAIDS of having 90 people 90% of people tested, 90% on therapy, and 90% fully suppressed by 2020 is a very ambitious goal. And if we want to accomplish the 95-95-95 goals by 2030, we still have a lot of work to do. So there are also very big challenges to achieving any of these goals. These are highlighted here. The treatment gap challenge is one we're all very well aware of in terms of linkage to care, and I have a feeling, at least in our country, that gap is going to be considerably worse over the next four years if uh, our leaders have their say. Treatment for up to six to eight decades is an important issue, particularly in the context of the renal, cardiovascular, liver, and other potential adverse effects of some of the drugs that we use. Therapy options for infants, children, and pregnant women remain much more limited than for the average adult, and dealing with adherence, life chaos, treatment fatigue, the aging of the HIV population, and in particular drug interactions that may be used at different stages of life are important issues that contribute to limitations of our current therapies. There was another slide I stole from this year's CROI from Beatrice Grinstein's very nice talk, and that has to do with the global issue of drug resistance. We haven't done too much talking about epidemiology here, but as you can see from this slide, which reports in an observational uh, global cohort on pretreatment drug resistance, we have a kind of constant rate in both newly infected and chronically infected individuals of uh, 9% background prevalence of transmitted drug resistance or pretreatment treatment drug resistance. And that's driven mostly by the K103N because of the widespread availability and usage of efavirenz in the global setting, but also an appreciable rate of background resistance mutations to nucleoside, nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, and as uh, Dr. Lukemeyer talked about this morning, we're starting to see the emergence of integrase inhibitor resistance as well. So that takes me to the first class of drugs I want to address, and those are the novel strand transfer integrase inhibitors that are currently in development. All of you are familiar, I think, for of early stud- studies done with cabotegravir. Cabotegravir is an investigational integrase inhibitor that has both an oral and a long-acting nanosuspension injectable formulation. Both of these have very long half-lives and are being developed in conjunction with rilpivirine, which is obviously an approved NNRTI, but also has the advantage of a long half-life oral formulation and a nanosuspension long-acting parenteral formulation as well. And both of these drugs are being used together in clinical trials with the new approach of looking at long-acting injectable drugs. This is an older study now, and I'm only using it as a jumping-off point, but the LATTE study was the first sort of proof of principle in human clinical trials that you could take a long-acting oral drug and combine it with a long-acting companion drug to achieve a two-drug maintenance phase therapy with these two compounds, cabotegravir and rilpivirine. And in the bottom part of this slide, you can see that the higher doses of cabotegravir, 30 milligrams or 60 milligrams given orally, in combination with rilpivirine, achieved and maintained virologic suppression that was, in this setting, uh, superior to the long-term activity of efavirins. LATE2 was the follow-on study that looked at now switching to a long-acting nanosuspension given in an intramuscular injection following an induction period in treatment-naive individuals. So cabotegravir, abacavir, and 3TC were given as an oral treatment inducing full suppression, and then at the end of that induction period, patients were randomized to maintenance therapy with either 400 milligrams of cabotegravir and 600 milligrams of rilpivirine given intramuscularly every four weeks, uh, slightly higher doses given intramuscularly every eight weeks as maintenance therapy or the continuation of the oral regimen that they were assigned to initially. The 48-week outcome data are indicated here And although there was roughly equivalent treatment success across all three of these treatment arms in LATTE2, there was a little bit of a hint in the every eight-week intramuscular arm of a higher rate of virologic non-response. And... Although um, this was not statistically significant, it was significant in the context of the, all of the uh, virologic failures that occurred in this study occurred in that arm in patients who developed resistance, either an integrase inhibitor resistance or an NNRTI resistance mutation. Numbers are very small here, and that these patients are still being followed. But the overall safety and tolerability of the intramuscular nanosuspension uh, intermittent therapy was really quite good. Um, Some of us were doubting skeptics about patients wanting to be treated with an IM injection over a long period of time, but this study clearly showed that injection site reactions, while they occurred in a majority of patients, were mild to moderate. They did not result in treatment limitations or withdrawal, with the exception of two subjects, and overall, patient satisfaction was actually quite high. The yellow and blue bars reflecting patients who were very, dis, very satisfied or satisfied with their intramuscular injection regimens. So, this study again continues in long term follow up. And I think what we are now going to be seeing rolling out over the next year or two are results of the large phase three trials of this approach. Phase three treatment with either Dolutegravir, 3TC, and Abacavir or the two long-acting uh, agents after a four-week oral induction phase is being studied in the FLARE trial. There's a diff- slightly different study design, which is also phase three and randomized, but it's an immediate versus deferred initiation of cabotegravir and ralpivirine after a four-week oral lead-in phase, and then an ACTG study that will look at this regimen compared with background standard of care in people with a known history of poor adherence. So I think we'll have much more information about this particular regimen as the year progresses. The next integrase inhibitor I'll touch on is bictegravir, This is a once-daily unboosted integrase inhibitor that is active against both wild-type HIV and HIV with INSTE-resistant variants. And most of those integrase inhibitor resistance mutations are covered by this compound. It, too, has a long half-life, a low potential for drug-drug interactions, and in pilot studies using oral monotherapy for 10 days, resulted in a rapid dose-dependent reduction in HIV RNA of greater than two logs per copies per ml. It's currently being co-formulated with TAF and FTC, and in a study presented this year at CROI, Bictegravir plus TAF and FTC was shown to be safe and effective in treatment-naive patients. You notice I said safe and not, in not tolerable, but effective <laughs> Contrast to the monoclonal antibody studies that were suggested by Dr. Dueck this morning. This was a phase two randomized clinical trial, placebo controlled, in treatment naive individuals with CD4 counts above 200. And Bictegravir was selected at a dose of 75 milligrams once daily and compared to Dolutegravir, 50 milligrams once daily, plus TAFR FTC. Both arms were well-tolerated through 48 weeks. The most common adverse events were diarrhea and nausea. They weren't terribly different between the two arms. There were no serious adverse events or deaths in the study. Victegravir, like dolutegravir, had a modest elevation of serum creatinine due to, not renal toxicity, but decreased creatinine clearance. And only one patient in the whole study stopped treatment at week 24 for an urticaria reaction. This table summarizes all of the week 24 primary endpoint and week 48 e- secondary virologic endpoint data, basically showing that the treatment difference between these two arms was relatively small. Starts to splay a little bit at the week 48 secondary endpoint, and you can see that depicted more uh, clearly with the uh, bar graphs here. The green is the big tegravir group, the gray is the dolutegravir group, at week 24, there's no significant difference. At week 48, still no significant difference, although a little bit more of a push to favor the big tegravir arm. And this was largely driven by the rate of virologic failures in the dolutegravir arm. So moving on to the next class I'd like to talk about, novel or new investigational NNRTIs. The first one I'm going to highlight is l This is an oral prodrug of the base compound, uh, VM1500. The drug is a potent NNRTI with a half-life of about eight days. It's active against NNRTI-resistant mutants. Again, just like other studies I've I've highlighted, in a 10-day oral monotherapy uh, trial, it resulted in rapid reduction of more than two logs in HIV RNA. And the dose of 20 milligrams once daily has been chosen to move forward in clinical trials. In a phase 2b study reported at CROI as a late breaker this year, elvafaviren once daily was compared to efavirenz once daily plus tenofovir and FTC. And these are the data from that uh, late breaker poster. The week 48 data suggested that. In all participants, 81% of those receiving l were suppressed to less than 50 copies, compared to 73.7% for efavirins. And this largely had to do with the fact that those who, patients who had higher viral loads did a bit better on l I'd just caution you that this is a Phase 2b study, so it's not powered as a direct comparison and efficacy between these two, but suggests that at least in people with high viral loads, there may be a difference in, in overall virologic suppression. The other differences that were highlighted in this study were tolerability differences. And all, in terms of all adverse events, the l arm did a little bit better than the efavirine's arm, and in addition, there were greater numbers of grade 3 and 4 serious adverse events, skin rashes, and treatment discontinuation due to an adverse event in the efaviren's arm, although overall the proportions who had some CNS event in the study was about the same. Um, the next study I'm going to highlight is the DRIVE study. Um, you probably heard in previous conferences last year and the year before, doravirine is an NNRTI being developed by Merck. And as an investigational NNRTI, it's been shown to have potent activity against the common NNRTI-resistant mutants, including pretty much the full spectrum of those that confer um, poor treatment outcomes and patients receiving first-generation NNRTIs. It has a long half-life, like many of the drugs I've talked about, and can be used in once-daily dosing. It has a minimum potential for drug-drug interactions. In studies directly comparing it with efavirenz, it was actually associated with a lower rate of CNS adverse events than efavirenz. And in the study reported at CROI this year, the DRIVE study, doravirine was compared with darunavir-ritonavir given once daily in treatment-naive individuals and in combination with two NRTIs as background. And what you can see summarized on this slide is that the proportion of individuals with undetectable HIV RNA at both week 24 and week 48 was roughly comparable to that for darunavir-ritonavir and two NRTIs. The overall response rates and non-response rates were comparable, and you can see from the graphic depiction they're pretty much overlapping curves, suggesting that these two were equivalent in activity out to week 48. In some of the subset analyses, there was a trend toward slightly greater efficacy of doravirine for patients with baseline HIV RNAs that were very high or very low CD4 counts, suggesting that this might have a little bit more oomph to it when compared to darunavir-ritonavir. The adverse event profile for doravirine was also roughly equal to that of darunavir-ritonavir with one exception, and that was adverse events related to gastrointestinal upset with the ritonavir-boosted darunavir having more diarrhea than doravirine, but more importantly, Doravirine was associated at week 48 with a decline in fasting lipid levels, LDL cholesterol, and non-HDL cholesterol, where, as you might imagine, darunavir, ritonavir was associated with an increase. There was only one patient who developed any primary resistance to doravirine, and this was a patient who stopped therapy at week 24 due to non-adherence with their regimen. The next class of drugs I'm gonna highlight are the attachment inhibitors, and there's a couple of very novel compounds in development in this class of agents. You might be familiar with earlier studies that were presented from previous, in previous years about BS, BMS 663068. This is a novel attachment inhibitor that is a prodrug metabolized to Temsevir in vivo, it binds to the GP120 molecule and prevents viral attachment and host CD4 cell entry. It has been shown in earlier studies to be active against R5, X4, and dualtropic viruses to have a long half-life that favors once-daily dosing and has been evaluated in a randomized dose-ranging clinical trial in ART-experienced patients. GSK has now taken over the further development of this compound and it's now named fostemsavir and in a study presented at Glasgow this year HIV infected patients who had some treatment experience based on exposure to at least one ARV for more than one week had detectable virus and a CD4 count above 50 were randomized to one of several different dosing schedules Given this compound at 400 milligrams twice daily, or 800 milligrams twice daily, together with raltegravir and tenofovir, a 600 or 1200 milligram dose given once daily with raltegravir and tenofovir, and all four of those arms then compared with atazanavir, ritonavir, raltegravir, and tenofovir. The week 48 primary results were also presented um, previously at ID Week, and basically showed that uh, most of these dosing regimens and schedules were roughly equivalent and roughly similar to adazanavir-ritonavir in terms of virologic suppression. And what was presented at uh, Glasgow this year with was a week 96 analysis looking at a, a number of different subgroups trying to tease out whether there were specific patient populations that might do better with this compound compared to atazanavir ritonavir. And the bottom line conclusion from the subgroup analyses is that there was really no difference with regard to baseline viral load above or below um, 100,000 copies, baseline CD4 count above or below 200, male or female, older or younger age groups, or background, race, and ethnicity, and that the drug was equally active across a broad range of in vitro IC50s. So I think we'll see more of this drug going into further development in Phase three clinical trials over the next couple of years. Adverse events through week 96 are highlighted here for severe, and it was generally a well-tolerated compound, very similar to adazanavir-ritonavir, although there were a slightly higher rate of grade 2 through 4 or more serious adverse events in the adazanavir-ritonavir arm and more adverse events leading to drug discontinuation in the adazanavir-ritonavir arm. So I think we'll see more of this drug. It's currently in Phase three clinical trials in more heavily treatment-experienced patients and more, of, more to come on that compound. Another very interesting compound that many of us still consider to be somewhat controversial in terms of its activity is ibolizumab, which is a mo- humanized monoclonal antibody that uh, blocks CD4 cell receptors to block the post attachment HIV entry. And this compound has been studied primarily in individuals with heavily multidrug resistant. HIV. In this particular study, which is really, I guess, for lack of a better term, you'd call a pilot study, but it's a single-arm, open-label study looking at the proportion of individuals who had HIV RNAs decreased by one log, two logs, or to less than 50 copies per ml at week 24 in a study population that was heavily treatment experienced. Most of these individuals were resistant to drugs, All drugs from three or more classes and 61% of them had major integrase inhibitor resistance mutations. So heavily treated population really not much option for optimized background therapy. The control or the the first part of the study was accomplished by an induction period in which the monoclonal antibody was given intravenously on day seven as a loading dose, and patients were continued on their failing background therapy, and then at the end of day 14, they were started on a maintenance dose of the monoclonal antibody given in a dose of 800 milligrams IV on day 21 and then every two weeks thereafter, and patients were switched to an optimized background therapy. And these are the data that show the primary outcomes at week 24 in terms of the proportion of individuals who had greater than one log, greater than two log copies, declines in HIV RNA from baseline, or were suppressed to less than 50 or less than 200 copies. So roughly similar results, about 50% of individuals were fully suppressed at at less than 50 or less than 200 copies per ml. And this was met with a lot of uh, discussion at Croy this year, suggesting that how do you know it wasn't the modified, optimized background therapy and not the monoclonal antibody that resulted in this? But just to remind you that these people started off with heavily drug-resistant virus, with more than three, cl- with resistance to all drugs in more than three classes, and sixty. 60- percent more also resistant to the integrase inhibitor class so even if there was an effect of optimized background therapy it would have had to have been pretty modest in this group so i think uh, in terms of the audience about half of us looked look like thought this might be an enthusiastic outcome and the other half were a little skeptical so i think we'll see more of this compound play out in the next couple of years I think what made people a little more skeptical, too, was a relatively high rate of adverse events associated with the infusions of monoclonal antibodies. Now, they weren't all attributable to the monoclonal antibody itself. There were four deaths in the study, again, not attributable to the study drug, but certainly ones you would see in patients with heavily treatment-resistant virus. And there were no antibodies to ibalizumab that were detected. So it didn't induce antibody uh, formation against itself. The next uh, several minutes I'm going to finish just by talking about some novel investigational drugs that are in, in development but are earlier in the pipeline, and so less in the way of human clinical data available. I think one drug that was presented at CROI that people were very enthusiastic about is the first-in-class drug for a whole new class of compounds, the capsid inhibitors. And these are active in picomolar uh, concentrations. They inhibit multiple steps in the HIV replication cycle at capsid core assembly and at nuclear translocation after capsid core disassembly. They're highly potent against all the major subtypes of HIV and against resistant mutants and have a very conserved inhibitor binding site in P24 that hopefully will give it a high barrier for development of resistance. A compound has been selected by Gilead with high potency, low clearance, and long-acting agents, so we're hoping to see human clinical studies with this compound come along in the very near future. The next compound is also a Merck drug, EFDA. This is, fits into the NRTI class, although it's a novel type of NRTI, and it's being referred to as a <coughs> reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. It is highly active against both HIV-1 and HIV-2 at nanomolar, con- nanomolar concentrations. It's also mutants that have the K65R or the K65R-Q151 complex are hypersusceptible to this compound. And in monotherapy studies with a single 10 milligram oral dose, there was a median viral load reduction of almost two logs with this compound, and it has a median half-life of 60 hours. And over on the right-hand side of the slide, a parental formulation is being developed in which effective drug levels well above the EC54 uh, baseline virus are detectable at more than 180 days after a single administration with the parenteral formulation. So I think this is another one of those drugs that will fit into those long-acting nanosuspension compounds that may come along in terms of really revolutionizing how we give long-term therapy. The next compound that was presented, another Gilead drug, also an oral prodrug that uh, inhibits translocation of the reverse transcriptase inhibitor. This too has a low potential for mitochondrial toxicity and low potential for renal accumulation with broad activity against HIV 1 and 2, and broad acti- activity against nearly all of the NRTI resistant mutants, with the more with activity against the most common of these. Uh, resistant variants. This has little in the way of clinical activity uh, presented thus far, but as Gilead has been known to do, they've gone on to uh, modify some of their previous drugs to bring along those that improve on the toxicity and tolerability profile and on activity against mutant variants. And then not To be left behind, the protease inhibitor class does have at least one potential compound that may be in development shortly. This is uh, GSPI1, and this is a potent protease inhibitor that does not require boosting, has a high barrier to resistance, has a long half-life with the potential for once-daily oral dosing, and compared to current uh, protease inhibitor, based regimens, darunavir and atazanavir, it's highly active against resistant isolates to those two compounds. In the red and orange are the darunavir and adazanavir uh, activity against resistant isolates, and in blue is the activity of GSPI1. So suggesting that we have the potential for another uh, novel potent PI coming along. So I'll just summarize the pipeline for novel investigational drugs at this point to say that I think it's relatively robust. And like much drug development, it has taken advantage of what's come before and has really tried to focus on many of those areas that I highlighted at the beginning as significant challenges for lifelong antiretroviral therapy in that they have comparable or improved activity to current Uh, currently available regimens, they have built on the improvement in tolerability, and they've built on activity against drug-resistant virus available in their classes. And so I think as we'll see play out over the next year or two, where we go from here will really depend on how first some of these long-acting antiretroviral drugs and nanoformulations play out in combination and over the long term in treating patients. And These compounds will come into play also in determining whether we'll be able to use fewer drugs in a regimen or use those regimens less frequently, where we may be in a a stage of treatment where we can give people therapy once a month or once every other month. So I think it's a very interesting field of development in antiretroviral therapy right now, and one will be watching with uh, a lot of interest. So I'm going to stop there. Thank you.
0: Okay, thank you very much. We have some questions coming, and uh, let's see what they are here. On the injectable NNRTI and Integrase, what is the resistance profile if the patient misses a a dose of more than two to four months? In other words, will a single dose of Nevarapine, as with a single dose of Nevarapine, will resistance occur at
1: stopping? Um, I guess we can share the microphone. So I think the that's a question that has yet to be determined that the cabotegravir real regimen given uh, in the nanoformulation dosing over the long term is just coming in to large phase three clinical trials. The Phase 2 A and 2 B clinical trials have not shown. Uh, a low barrier to resistance. So cabotegravir is thought to be sort of in that category as dolutegravir is with a relatively high barrier to development of resistance. And as you saw um, from the data that Dr. Leukemeyer presented with dolutegravir and pivoting as a maintenance dose uh, regimen, the development of resistance has really been pretty low. But I think it remains to be seen with these much uh, more intermittent therapies what we will see in terms of development of resistance. Obviously, rilpivirine is one of those drugs that's challenged in terms of barrier to resistance, but cabotegravir may make up for some of that. Um, We don't really yet have data from the Phase two studies of people who've missed doses out beyond two to four months. The one patient I showed you who developed resistance had both an NNRTI and an integrase inhibitor resistance mutation but that patient just had stopped therapy at week 24 which raises another point and that is what is going to be the safety profile when people do stop therapy and i think that's a concern with these long nanoformulations, for which there is detectable drug in the bloodstream for a prolonged period of time eventually that drug is going to diminish And, you know, we had this whole long debate years ago about covering the tail of navirapine when we stopped NNRTIs abruptly in our patient population. What are we going to need to do with these long-acting nanoformulations? Um, I think the hope is that when we combine them together that that long tail will have less of a negative impact as a single drug might do. But I think that's only a question we'll be able to answer from clinical trials.
0: I guess one question I'd have for you along that line, though, is in the, um, you may remember the um, um, intermittent therapy craze of about uh, 20 years ago, in which people would uh, be on drug for a a week and off for a week, or on for a week and off for two weeks, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And there was a lot of concern. We got away with it, I think, then, because when they stopped their drugs, the viral replication rate was relatively low because it was kind of beaten down into the reservoir, and there weren't that many viral cycles in the presence of the tail of the nevarapine, of the, uh, of of, of avarins, uh, as the uh, drug was stopped over that short period of time. In this case, what you'll have, though, is a very long, prolonged uh, decline in drug level in the presence of virus that has been, uh, that you haven't been uh, suppressing uh, for long enough, as you saw from Dr. Dueck's slides this morning, when you stop therapy, the virus comes bounding back between one and four weeks later, and now you've got a tail that lasts a long time in the presence of virus that's growing like crazy. So this kind of a tail may be much more damaging than a short tail uh, after what, these these shorter uh, interruptions of therapy. No, it was a question, but it was, was actually, that question? <laughs> I guess I got carried away, Not My sure apologies. where to go with that. <laughs> Will you get back to Sandra? But
1: I, I think in summary we're agreeing that there is a concern <laughs> with these long tail compounds that Patients who stop taking them, eventually there may be a deleterious effect with that long half-life and that long metabolism uh, characteristic. Will we see emergence of resistance in a way that is not currently anticipated in the clinical trials? So again, I think the conclusion is we don't know, but it's something that we're worried about and that needs to be evaluated carefully in clinical trials.
0: You always have to be careful when someone's in the same institution about hearing about it later. So I'll be more careful about that. (laughs) Okay. Um, The other uh, issue, I guess, is we're lucky with these drugs that they don't have um, uh, late toxicities. Like, um, for example, if this were a a, uh, penicillin drug, and three weeks into it you suddenly started getting a rash, um, the drug would be hanging around for a long time. It's hard to uh, excise nanoparticles from your hip. Uh, <laughs> but it is something to think about uh, as a wider and wider variety of these uh, of these formulations come along. Okay, other questions? Um, yes, sir. Are the attachment inhibitors such
1: as GSK drugs being considered for prey? Um I think the short answer is yes, but uh, I think the experience thus far with other drugs sort of in that category of attachment inhibitors um, the data are still playing out in terms of their uh, activity in PrEP. There's a large trial going on now with Maraviroc and, uh, and a combination of Maraviroc with other drugs uh, attempting to look at this. The early studies with Maraviroc in the setting of PrEP didn't look like it worked very well. So I think... I think it's being considered. I just don't think they're quite ready to put it into that category of treatment at this point. Yeah, with this GSK you showed, it's good for R five, X4, and Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so I I think it's definitely being considered. It's just not in any clinical trials in that that setting as of yet.
0: these drug trials in 2017. I mean you know there are there's a small I mean there's an ongoing group of people who are newly infected but they have lots of choices and a lot of the targets for this are people who you can think of would be homeless, incarcerated, uh, infants, children, and of course we can't do studies in that group up front. So can you talk about how you're doing clinical studies and how you recruit and where the patients come from?
1: <laughs> the so how many of you are participating in some of the f- these Phase three trials with these? It's usually a pretty good group in San Francisco who are participating in them. As I think those of you who do uh, anything with clinical trials, you're starting to see the same things we are that it's increasingly difficult to recruit treatment naive patients to studies because they have so many good options and so their their level of altruism has to be higher than perhaps it was in the past when people were felt like they were getting something more in a clinical trial than they could get in clinical practice the the tide has shifted in that regard and you know we're going through in the HIV field something very similar to what oncologists have done over the years they're they're Proportion of people with cancer who participated in a clinical trial dropped down to as low as less than 5 percent of all people with cancer were participating in cancer clinical trials, which makes it very hard to develop new drugs and to develop new regimens to address some of the populations that most need them. I think the, the nano formulations are ones that people are talking about as having a particular advantage for patients who might otherwise not be your perfect candidate for a clinical trial, the non-adherent patients, people with chaotic lifestyles. We don't tend to put those into clinical trials, but we're starting to do that. As you saw with the ACTG study, we're making an attempt to put people into a clinical trial with the nano formulations who we know are people previously known to be poorly adherent to their therapy. But they're very difficult patients to study. They're difficult to follow. They're difficult to get into studies. They're difficult to find if they disappear. And it's not an easy proposition to find patients who fit into these categories. And so most of the companies are going um, outside of the traditional venues for patients and having to... Enroll patients at hundreds of clinical practices and clinical trial settings around the world. I mean, there's some some of these studies have more than you know 200 sites in enrolling patients to fill a 600 patient study. So, it's not, I think, as easy as the old days of doing studies. Yes, sir.
0: Yeah, I think you're referring to kind of like the CPCRA used to try to do studies in the community, you know, the one that eventually did the SMART trial. Um, the concern, I guess, with the cabotegravir rap- the issue will be it won't be studied in that population. That po- that population will not get into a clinical trial uh, like that. And, you know, for a registry trial, it, they won't get
1: into No, it. not for a registrational trial. They That's won't. why the ACTG is doing it.
0: So, but you think the ACTG is actually going to be a, people who are non-compliant will get into that trial?
1: That It's specifically designed for non-adherent patients. So there's two registrational phase three trials that are being done by GSKV. Right, right, right. The, and those two will be their registrational trials that they will use for approval of the drug. They are allowing the ACTG to design a study in patients with a known history of non-adherence and comparing it to what you would ordinarily use as standard of care and comparing it to cabotegravir and rilpivirine. Yeah,
0: because I, I think only in that second in the ACTG would you get the information on what happens when you discontinue the drug, because that's going to be key.
1: Well, that's know. what we think. <laughs> but, you know, you know every, fa- every clinical trial that patients are poorly adherent. That's why we have but rates of... R- virologic suppression at week 48 that are 85 to 90 percent. What happens to those other 10 percent? Those are the ones who are poorly adherent to therapy but, for the most part. Yeah, and I think that will be incumbent on, you know, if there's still an FDA left by then, it will be incumbent upon them to to force the pharmaceutical industry to follow those patients long term so that we do gather that information. Um, there has been a big push for the FDA and pharmaceutical industry to have long-term follow-up studies of patients of patients who are enrolled in clinical trials. Many of the cohort studies that were started with the alert in the ACTG had a specific intention of doing that so that we could look at some of these very long-term follow-up things. but you know, you're know, you right, if it's a registrational trial, they go for the big objective, get your drug approved, get it out there, and then see what happens. And so we're the ones who are the ones that see what happens.
0: Thank you very much.